I'd like to begin today um, with a confession about confession. You know, we've been doing morning prayer Monday through Friday, and uh, some time ago I switched over and actually started using the, the new liturgy that will be in the forthcoming prayer book, which will couple years from now be put together. Um, by the way, you're welcome to join nine o'clock in that corner. We pray for half an hour. But the prayer service after one opening scripture verse launches us right into the confession. That's how it starts. It's the first thing we do is we confess our sins and then we get into the rest of the prayer time. And I've, as I was preparing to preach to you today, I, I was thinking about that experience and I found that as soon as we start into the service, that confession grieves me a little bit. I don't like it. I don't want to have to keep confessing. It's sin, of course, in me, but I don't like the idea that there's a brokenness that hasn't been fixed. And that, you know, as a problem solver, as an engineer in my mind, I think something's not working, fix it, and then it's working again. But the problem is, if I fix one thing, there's still other things that are broken, and it's a lifelong process. And I find that it is troubling that I can't get it right. I think a lot of us, I I suspect a lot of us, wrestle with a similar thing. No one likes to admit that they get it wrong. They keep either neglecting to do what they should or they do things they shouldn't. Nobody likes that. It's a terrible experience. We don't naturally like to be corrected. And if you've ever been in the position of management or leadership or if you're a parent and you're in the spot where you have to correct someone else, you know how hard that is. It's, you could say 10 words of praise to somebody of how great they've done, but then there's one thing you bring up that needs some work, and that's all they can hear, right? They don't hear the 10 words of praise. All they can hear is, well, he's not happy with me for whatever. And some people will even recoil back against you. I think there's great wisdom in the Proverbs on this. And as I was reading, I came across this proverb from Proverbs 9. It says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. It comes right back at you, right? And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. To get to that place of being a wise man takes a lot of work, a lot of healing to the heart. the person has to acknowledge that if I am going to improve, I'm going to have to see my blind spots. And so if someone brings correction to me, as hard as it is to hear, I need to hear it because I want to grow. But that takes huge maturity to get to that place. We don't like it. And if I said to you, well, are you perfect? Your Your instant answer is going to be, well, no, nobody's perfect. But, right? There's a but, but I do my best, but I always try my hardest. There's always a but to that. You don't say, well, nobody's perfect and I'm not perfect and leave it there. There's always some statement that comes after it, but I try really hard. Or my favorite, well, I mean, I'm a basically good person. I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. The one I hear all the time, I think it's interesting. People love to compare themselves to Hitler. (laughs) Well, Well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Well, if you want to bring the scale that low, of course you're going to look pretty good, right? But we're, the problem is we're looking in the wrong direction to set the scale. Don't look at Hitler to determine your goodness. That's not helpful. But thus goes our rationalizing of an idol. And the idol is my own goodness. I want to be better. I want to appear good. I want merit. 
I want to be self-righteous. And it's an, it's an idol. And we're in this series on idolatry, and we're just, we're just following the lectionary now. So this is just, you know, I, I can preach on whatever comes up, and I don't have to be afraid of the tough topics because I'm just following the lectionary. So watch out. Whatever's coming is coming. You can read ahead and see where we're going. But we're hitting the idolatry here in these passages on Luke. And, and idolatry, as a definition, is just taking something that's good and making it ultimate. I'm not saying be bad. I don't want to endorse that. It is good when we do good. The problem is that that doesn't make us not still sinners and not still in need of grace. The idol is self-righteousness. I want to be approved because of my good works, not just because of God's grace. And the gospel flies right in the face of that. Jesus was once asked by a man, he was addressed as a good rabbi. He's, someone came up and said, good rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Right? Which raises a question of, well, if you call me good, is it because you know I'm God? Or are you just flattering me? And if he says, no one is good but God alone, do you believe that to be true? If you believe that to be true, it says something about you, right? You're not God. So that leaves the other alternative. No one is good but God alone. I've shared this story with you before, and it's worth repeating because it, it has remained with me ever since because it's so helpful in thinking about people's attitudes. And we happen to be suburbanites, most of us living out here in the suburbs. But a man spoke at my seminary in the dean's hour, and he described a situation he had where he was presented with an opportunity to do ministry after he finished his schooling in one of two places. <clears throat> there was a ministry in an urban city, city setting, and there was a ministry at a church in the suburbs. And he's, he confessed to us, he said, at first, I thought the more the hard, the real ministry, the kingdom work would be to go to the urban setting and share the gospel there, that that would be a tougher ministry. And he ended up picking the suburban church and he said, I found that was a much harder ministry in the suburbs. And the reason was because the people were asking two different sets of questions. In the urban setting, the people were asking, will God forgive me? Will God accept me? Can God save me? And the people in the suburbs were saying, why do I need God? What can God do for me? And those two categories of questions are not new. They've been around for 2,000 years. In fact, we see it right in Luke 15. So let's turn in the Bible now and go to Luke 15, which is our text for today. And let's look at what's happening here. This chapter has three parables, all about lost things that are found. And Jesus the great teacher made these parables up. They didn't really happen. They're just little stories to illustrate an important truth. There's a parable of a lost sheep. There's a parable of a lost coin. And there's a parable of a lost son. And the context of what was happening, why Jesus told these parables is the scribes and the Pharisees were grumbling and complaining because Jesus was welcoming sinners, notorious sinners, people who were in the category of being a tax collector, which meant they were basically working for the enemy and getting rich off of their own people. So they were hated or prostitutes or people who were somehow on the fringe because of their moral choices or their lifestyle or whatever. And they were grumbling. These Pharisees were grumbling against Jesus because it says this, they said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Not only is he receiving them, but then he's endorsing them by having a meal with them. He is 
he's scandalizing us, right? And the sinners were coming in and were shocked that this rabbi, this miracle-working rabbi, clearly who had the power of God on his side, was receiving them and was offering them forgiveness and was welcoming them. And so they were coming in huge numbers to him. And he was healing them and he was inviting them into the kingdom. And the Pharisees were standing off with their arms folded like this going, this man, this man receives sinners. And what they wanted to do was they wanted the blessings of Jesus, they wanted the power of Jesus, and they wanted it because they were good. We do all the right stuff. We want to be received. But they wanted to be recognized for their own works. They were caught up in that idol of self-righteousness. And so to these grumbling people, Jesus appeals to a common experience. The universal experience of both anxiety and relief that happens when something is lost. You know the experience, right? You've lost your keys, and you're freaking out running around the house. Or worse, your wedding ring. I was on a trip. I was on a trip, um, this Anglican Leadership Initiative. uh, This was several years ago now. Um, And we went to Colorado, and we went up on a mountain, and we went with this outfitter called Noah's Ark Outfitters out of Buena Vista. And Pat, who was the guide for us and a really accomplished outdoorsman, He was in charge of food and the logistics and everything. We hiked up to a crazy elevation and it was, there was still snow on the ground. It was cold. It was wet. And Pat suddenly realized as he's unpacking everything, taking bags off of llamas. We had llamas. It was crazy. And he's unpacking all this stuff and he goes, oh my goodness, my wedding ring. He'd been married for one year and his father-in-law was an artisan and had made this custom wedding ring. And and we're, we're, we're in the wilderness of Colorado on some mountain. And I had, I had an experience that I've had very rarely where I don't know why, but I knew where the ring was. Like it was this, I don't know, I'm, I'm trusting it was simply the Lord being kind to Pat, but our camp of a dozen people start going around all over looking for it. And I just, I just, I don't, I thought it's there. And I, I walked over and I picked up this thing and sure enough, it was sitting there in the wet grass. And I went, here it is. And then this huge relief came over our whole group. He couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that we found it. And you know that feeling though, right? Rejoice with me. I found my wedding ring. We can all be at peace. And we also know the anxiety of when something is missing. And that's how Jesus launches into these parables. He says to the Pharisees, you yourselves know if one of you has a hundred sheep and one goes lost, you leave the 99 and you go after the other one until you find it. And when you come home, you rejoice and everyone with you. And the same thing, if a woman has 10 coins and loses one, she lights a lantern, she sweeps the house clean. And when she finds it, she calls her friends to rejoice. Now we don't throw a party, but when something is lost, you're telling people, oh, I'm really upset, I've lost this thing, and they're feeling that anxiety as well. And when you find it, they're also rejoicing with you, right? They're so grateful for that. Understand this, all of heaven, the angels of heaven, experience that over sinners that are lost. And when one is found, they rejoice, they celebrate. That relief has come in. One that was lost has been found. Jesus wants the Pharisees and us to understand that that's how heaven is. That's who our God is. Our God cares that much about us that he will seek and not stop seeking until he finds us. This is an analogy of what heaven is like. These little parables show us that. And I want to clarify something. This is not just about salvation for the first time. This is not about 
regeneration. You're, you were not a Christian, and now you got found, and now you are a Christian. Because look at what Jesus says in that first parable. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Not over one non-believer who becomes a Christian, over one sinner who repents. In other words, for each person in this room, when we get to the place of acknowledging that we have fallen from God's standard again, and we repent of it, not just remorse, not just I'm sorry that it happened, but actually come to the place of, I have a change of mind about it. When we turn back to God, all of heaven, the angels, the entire company of heaven, they celebrate, they rejoice. They are so happy because that has happened. It is for us, regardless of whether it's the first time or the hundredth time or more. Now, in this section, there are three, three parables. And Luke wasn't just trying to say the same exact thing three times over. Although, he does, in each parable, talk about something that was lost and then something, and that thing being found. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon points something out about these three parables and their significance. He says, the third parable, which is the one we didn't read today, but you all know it, the prodigal son parable, probably the most famous parable of Jesus, the prodigal son. The third parable would be likely misunderstood without the first and the second parables as well. He says, we've sometimes heard it said, here is the prodigal received as soon as he comes back, but no mention is being made of a savior who seeks him and saves him. It is possible to teach, um, it is not possible to teach all truths from one parable. Spurgeon goes on and he says, does not the first parable speak of the shepherd seeking the lost sheep? And why, uh, why need repeat what has been said before? So the prodigal son parable doesn't have to talk about the son seeking because the first parable did. The good shepherd goes out and seeks. So he's already on a mission to receive what's been lost. He goes on and he says, it's, already, it's also been said that the prodigal returned of his own free will and that there is no hint of the operation of a superior power on his heart and on his life. Again, that's really not in the prodigal son parable, but then we look at the second parable in the series, the parable of the coin, and we recognize something that's really important there. Uh, it's, he, he says, Spurgeon says, um, the prodigal son seems to say spontaneously to himself, I will arise and go to my father. The answer is that the Holy Spirit's work has been clearly described in the second parable, and it need not be introduced again. If you put these three pictures in a line, they represent the whole compass of salvation. So we see this, this first parable, right? There's a shepherd. How many times does the scripture talk about Jesus as being a shepherd? He's the chief shepherd, it says in one place. He says of himself, I'm the good shepherd. So we see this picture of one of the three persons of the Trinity there. And in the parable of the prodigal son, we see this picture of a father whose eye is fixed on the end of the driveway the whole time. So when the son comes back, he is already running down the path to receive him, and he is so ready to receive him home. The son's working on his speech, and the father is already out there accepting him before he even gets the speech out of his mouth. And then the second parable of the coin. Well, think about this. The first and the third parables, the sheep and the son, they actually do have physical power to return if they wanted to. But a coin is lifeless and dead. It's a, it's a dead object that has fallen into the dark corner under the dust in the house somewhere, and there's no life in it. And throughout the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is referred to in many different ways as the one who shines the light of God into darkness, the one who illuminates hearts, and the Spirit of God that brings what is dead to life. So the woman lights this candle in the house and then sweeps it clean to find this 
coin and then rejoices. Our hearts are hard, stony, and dead until the Holy Spirit shines the light of God on us and regenerates new life in us. That is the work of the life-giving Spirit of God. So what we see here is all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all share the same mission. They all are longing to see what has been lost, found, and restored into what it was supposed to be. All three of them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not just Jesus who's the missionary. The Father and the Spirit are missionaries as well. This is our God, and this is really important. This is who he is. Take a look at God, the Father, constantly has his eye fixed on the end of the road. The spirit at work ahead of time, the theological word is prevenient grace. He is working ahead of time to make you want to seek God. If you are seeking God, you think you're seeking God because you want God, but the desire was planted there by the Holy Spirit. He's the one drawing you. And then think of the son who left the 99 in heaven and came on a mission for us. This is who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, here's my application to this sermon. I could say, since God seeks the lost, you should go seek the lost. And that would be true. That would be good. I think you should seek the lost. But that's not my application this morning. My application this morning is I don't want you to do a single thing at all. I want you to simply let the grace of God wash over you to transform you, to heal you, to let you know how loved you are because of who he is and what he's done. This is who God is. He is the friend of sinners. I started this service off by reading from Zephaniah 3.17, where God rejoices over you with loud singing. He exalts over you. He is mighty to save. This is who our God is. Let me conclude with a a story, an, an, an analogy, let's say, another analogy. I have a dog, right? An older dog, a nine years old. He's we, he's sweet. We like him. Uh, we're going to keep him after nine years. Um, every once and, and it, being older, he'll, he'll hang around with us outside, usually. Every once in a while, he decides he has to go across the street and down away and, and sniff the neighbor's bushes. And then I look like a fool because I'm standing at the end of my driveway going, Leo, Leo, cookie, want a cookie, want a cookie. And he's, and he's doing this to me want a cookie. And so what I do, I, I, I go and I get the leash and I storm across the street and I grab him by the collar and I hook it on and I walk too fast for him. So he's sort of being dragged like this back to the house. And I'm going, there's no cookie in your future, pal. <laughs> and he goes right in the house, not oblivious to my sarcasm. And he, and he goes right to the pantry and he's looking. I go, no, no, you get the cookie if you come when I call you. Right. And that's how we, that's how we seek the lost. We get irritated that it takes work on our part. Look at the, the, the contrast in that first parable. When the good shepherd finds that lost sheep at great personal expense, what does he do with it? He scoops it up and he puts it on his shoulders and he takes it home, carrying it home. And then he rejoices with a party. He is filled with delight that he has found what was lost. That's the grace of God for us. That's who our God is. He doesn't drag us by the collar and kick us and be sarcastic to us. He carries us on his, our, on his shoulders when we can't walk. He expresses that kind of love for us. He delights over us and rejoices in us. When that has washed over your heart, you will also want other people to be found by him. When that has washed over your heart, you will delight 
to come and confess to him because you hate the sin and you want the fellowship with him. Everything is different when we understand that that is who our God is. He loves you. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good and we are not deserving. Forgive us, Lord, for even being tempted to make an idol out of our self-righteousness. We are not worthy and you love us anyway. Lord, teach us to love you back and to love others because of your greatness to us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.